Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. My first thought was, as somebody who grew up around here, I'm sick of hearing anything that comes close to a complaint from the Mets players about getting booed. I, I try and have empathy about it. I wouldn't want to get booed at my job, and I actually think it's kind of a counterproductive thing for fans to do. But it's part of playing here. Mets players try to appeal to this passionate fan base all the time, but don't seem to like negativity or even honesty, uh, whether it's from the fans or the media. And it's the media's job, by the way, to be critical and honest because the fans are critical and honest. They'll see through any type of cheerleading here. So as far as the booing, when you're playing badly, the fans here aren't going to just sip their beer, enjoy their day at the park. This isn't a hobby to them. It's deeper than that, which gets me to part two. And this is when I started to spiral. Uh, is everything I just described about playing in New York the problem with playing in New York? Would you want to play here? Would you choose to play here? Or would you uh, take the same amount of money to play somewhere else with less scrutiny? Is the intensity and the passion of the fan bases in this town becoming a hurdle for today's generation of players? Well, Chris, he brings up an interesting debate uh, because there is a debate to be had about the wisdom of booing the players on your favorite team. It's not exactly encouragement. They're not going to do better because you boo them. So that's a discussion that all fans can have with themselves and, you know, come to the, their own conclusions. They do have a right to boo. Uh, you know, that said, I, I think in the annals of the player fan dynamic, I don't have the stats in front of me, Chris, but the fans are undefeated. Uh, this is not the right way to go. I applaud Baez for being frank and saying what he really felt as a person in the media. I applaud that. Uh, but I don't think it's a good strategy. Um, look, fans will always have the last word here, always. And, you know, players come and go. Fans are here for, for life. And it's just not a great tack to take. And if they are going into, a you know, an us against the world type thing, you know, I get that. But you can't 
you, you can't do it at the expense of your own fans. You know, keep it with the gestures. Keep it to yourself. Uh, you know, and not. I didn't mean to offend anybody. This is something that that I've done in the past against the other team. Um, I did it in LA to the to the to the dugout. It's it's not like like I I'm, I might say something wrong about I was booing the fans, and and I really meant like to like boo me now, like and not to the fans to to our dugout because I I done it I done it with the other team against against other teams. But like I never seen it, the same like the, the same fans and like I, I didn't say the fans are bad, like I love the fans. But like <clears throat> I just felt like we were alone. Like like the fans obviously wants wants to win and, and like they pay our salary like like everybody says. But like we want to win too. Like and the frustration got to us. You know, it thumbs down. It's too dug out. It, thumbs down for for me means adversity. The adversity we have gone through. In this whole time, like the, the negative things, we overcome it. So it's like, you know, it's we, we did it. We went over it. However, it was wrong, and I apologize um, to whoever I offended. It was not my intent to offend people. I can't go against the fans. Uh, I've never done it in my career. Um, we we play for the fans, like Harvey said. Harvey said we play for the fans, and he's. 100% right um, for the, our teammates, for the front office, for our families, um, for the city. So, with that being said, like I said, I apologize, and it, it, it's, it didn't look good on our part. And Conforto slashes one the other way, base hit that ties the game. Alonzo in, Fires digging for third. It's kicked by Alfaro. Here comes Fires trying to score. He scores, and the Mets win it. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Wednesday, September the 1st, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, now Amazon Music, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Yes, I am coming to you midweek. I guess we these are these these shorts, talking about shorts, silver shorts, state of the union, whatever you want to call them. And usually when I unfortunately when I come to you midweek, it's never with with good news. It's uh, a manager got fired for sign stealing, a manager got fired for an inappropriate text, a uh, hitting coach gets fired. And now I felt the need after Sunday, I didn't feel good about the fact that how uh, look this happens. This is the the risk with these kind of shows. It's it's specifically in the off season, and it's even harder in the regular season when news is coming fast and furious. But 
when uh, Steve Keen, my friend uh, at Cranepool Society, uh, and I had that conversation before the Mets and Nats on Sunday about Jerry Kuzman and and everything. I, that's really where I wanted to go. I wanted to take a different approach with the show. But who would have thought Javi Baez would go on the post game and ignite this fire? And I addressed briefly in the open, the booing, but I didn't really touch on it. And obviously, more quotes and more commentary have come out since then. And I, I really felt it would not be complete. And I wouldn't be doing a good job here if I, if I didn't come out and really say, okay, let me, let me clarify a little bit. Uh, not apologize, let me clarify in more depth where I was going with my comments because I don't think the open and then going into the the clips that uh, you know of Steve and I talking about Kuzman did justice to a very nuanced topic and a very important topic because what's going on right now at City Field is something that's been going on for well over 20 years. And I think it's part of why there's a problem at times in getting things done around here. Um, I think it's a bigger problem than the fans realize with players coming here. And it's not just an owner with $14 billion that's going to come in and and fix it. It's understanding the dynamic here and all parties involved. Well, two of the three, I think, can be better. Um, one has the most control, the players. One is not going to be better. That's the media. I've given up on them. And then the fans are the ones that are kind of in the middle here. And it'll be interesting to see how they evolve and grow as this new era of Mets baseball with this new owner. Can they evolve and grow while both sides are trying to get to the promised land? Because that's ultimately what's what's what everybody wants, which, which is to win a championship. Let me. So basically, my feeling is this, and 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 I, I there are people believing that I said it was okay for or it was a good idea, or, uh, you know, Javi Baez saying booing the fans is is no big deal. In the in the context of the players in that clubhouse, it, it really is not. It's really not. Because they go in there, and when they go out in the field, and I, I spoke to players. I spoke to more than one about this over the years. Recently, I spoke to a player. They're going to go out, as long as they prepare for what their role is, they prepare to do their job, they prepare for the, that night's pitcher. When they're up at the plate, the only thing that may come into play is the tension or the extra scrutiny or the pressure they put on themselves. They can control that. That's going to exist whether they thumbs down the fan, thumbs up the fan, or don't do anything at all. Pressure comes from within a lot of times. It's the environment. It's, your, it's psychological. It's your head. I I don't think – what and, I, and I, the, the big thing I think I was trying to say on Sunday – I don't think if they did this within themselves, it's a problem. I think that's where the real issue is. That the media and the fans say, well, how dare they feel this way about the fans? Why? You don't think players have issues with fans or dislike fans? That doesn't mean they don't understand that who pays the bills and the necessity of fans. It means I'm annoyed with these people that are part of my work circle. Why? I mean, for those for those of you out there in business or, or or whatever, you have customers. You're never annoyed with them. Now you don't want to go out and yell at them. Sometimes you have to have disagreements. Sometimes you have to have difficult conversations. But what you don't think inside internally? You never say, "Oh, I can't stand this. I wish this. I wish that." Everybody, this is no different. 
These guys just have a forum to publicize it. And these guys, specifically Baez, coming from an environment in Chicago, and I don't know if it was John Harper who said it, but really said it best, that that intoxication of Cubs Nation that started in 2015 when the Mets beat them that season and then immediately led to World Series the following year, it was a love fest. And the criticism of the Cubs always was, I remember, that fans would go to Wrigley Field just to go to Wrigley Field to take the sun, uh, be on camera, uh, get drunk, you know, maybe if you were scantily clad and of a certain, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to say this, uh, a certain gender, you might, you know, enjoy yourself some more over there. Um, so the baseball, especially once they won a championship, the baseball was kind of just there. It was like a big party and a baseball game broke out. So Baez lives in that environment his whole career, comes here, and that's not what this place is about. This place is about drama, anxiety, stress, disappointment, a lot of passion to win, but sometimes the reaction to what goes on, the challenges that come with winning, and especially winning a championship, I don't always think the fans have handled that well. And this is going all the way back uh, probably to when Bobby Bonilla came over. I think a lot of this started with Bobby Bonilla, but I'll get to that in a minute. Most importantly, when you start with the players, there's two players here, and it's funny because Baez said the comments, but Lindor's the guy that everybody's focused on. Baez very well could be a footnote here in Mets history. And what's interesting is that if you really look closely, he's not my type of player, and he's such a risk to give a big contract. I mean, if you could get him on a reasonable short-term deal that doesn't kill your flexibility in other areas of the organization and still allows you potentially to go out and acquire other offensive pieces that could become expensive, he's a good guy to have around. He plays a lot of positions. He has speed. Uh, he's dynamic. I mean, he's won. I mean, yesterday in game one, his base running uh, you know, helped win that game, put pressure on the defense. He, he beat Florida earlier in the month. Florida, Miami. I always make that mistake from time to time. Uh LA, a game they had to have. He had that game on that Sunday when Stroman pitched. He basically uh, got the offense going. He could win games by himself. But more than likely, because other teams are going to see that and they're going to want to make him their centerpiece or win an offseason or maybe he just wants to go somewhere else. Maybe he goes back to Chicago. Maybe this isn't for him, even though his buddy is to his, uh, to his right when he plays second or to his left if he plays third. Uh, he may just decide to go out. So he's going to be a footnote in all this. And at some point, it's very possible that Baez will be one of those players that has a really good career and at some point go, oh, did you know he played for the Mets? Do you remember he played for the Mets? People go, really? Oh, right, right, right. He played, you know, two months in New York. Lindor is the more complex one because this is happening exactly as I said it was going to happen. And if you don't believe me, if you're listening now, and whether you like me and you ever want to listen again or not, I really say, go back. Go back to when this, this signing went down. Before the signing happened and right after. Because I said it best. I didn't I didn't care if they signed him. Uh, I was okay with it. But I was warning everybody about the responsibility that comes with it. I told everybody it wasn't a bad idea to go out there and play this out. And both sides get to know each other. This was a, the most shotgun of shotgun marriages it was a trade. It was a trade in the latter part of the offseason. And it was with a new ownership group and with a team that is in transition 
in all facets of the organization. Front office, marketing, president of the team, owner of the team. And oh, by the way, we're expected to win and not only win, win a championship. We're not rebuilding. Give a ton of credit to the owner and all these guys for actually trying to achieve this mission. And I hope even if they bring another president of baseball operations in this offseason, that continues. There's no excuse to do a long-term rebuild. That's exactly what's wrong with the sport. And for all the criticism the Mets get, they never get praised since Brody Van Wagenen came in that they never went that route. And they easily could have went that route, and they probably would have been applauded for that route by many members of the media. They would have been criticized still because that's what the media does to them, but they would have been applauded because they followed the basic blueprint that you see in Baltimore and that the Astros did and, and the Cubs did many, many moons ago. Lindor and the Mets fans have to figure this out. Part of the, it is maybe on the Mets fans is realizing who you have here. I don't think the player you have here offensively is the player you're going to see for the next decade. But he's not Mike Trout. He's not. He's probably not a top five player in all of baseball. He was that for a year or so. That was an outlier. He is a better version of Jose Reyes. He can hit for more power. He's better defensively. He's got better instincts. He probably is a little more together as a baseball player. A little more, a little less, you know, emotional and, and out of control at times where I thought Reyes went. But that's who he is. Is he really worth $35 million a year? Well, Fangraphs probably will say so just based on his defense. But I think when our eyes and our emotions and everything come together, we all know that that's probably not the case. So we have to realize who Lindor is. And if he starts to get to his normal offensive production, 20, 25 home runs, 115 OPS plus, elite defense you know he's you know if he can handle and and navigate the media a little bit better he had the rat raccoon thing now he has this i think he has to realize you can't ropey dope this is not a all due respect to the midwest i love him to death Uh, this is not a midwestern fan base this is not a midwestern beat this is way different way different out there And uh, he is going to be here for 10 years, and he's going to be a leader in one sense or the other because you know every young Latin player that comes through this clubhouse is going to look up to him and want to be him. They want to be him in his pocketbook. They want to be him as a person. They want to be him and how he is in his community, respected, whether you fans like him or not. Uh, They want to have the career he had. So he's going to be a leader, just like when Robbie Cano, and, and maybe they miss Robbie Cano here. Just like Robbie Cano, to a certain degree, is that guy with uh, with with Latino players. That's just fact. Guys are going to navigate and look up to people that they could identify with because of the background and how and and how they came through the league and the things they do. That's just fact. Okay, you can like what I just said or not. That's fact. So he's going to be here. He's going to have a ton of influence. I know now the narrative being painted is that he's got the owner by the coattails and he's dictating the front office. Mets decided to go big splash at the deadline and bring in his buddy, who was the most, who was the easiest transaction to make at the time. The Braves went a different route. They went less sexy, which the Mets would have been criticized with the kind of moves. If the Mets did the kind of moves that the Braves did, it wouldn't have been tarred and feathered 
but it would have been, eh, it's not enough. Sometimes the non-sexy moves, which I was all for leading up to the deadline, if that happened, uh, are the best. Look at Trevor Williams comes in, not a sexy piece of that puzzle. Has been a decent, useful starting pitcher. One that they could have probably used all season instead of the Eikhoffs and the Stocks and bullpen games and all the other stuff that went on. So the media was part of that and the fans got to sign him, got to sign him, got to sign him. Need a splash, need a splash. The media, you need to prove that you could be here on the big stage, Steve Cohen. You need to prove, sign, sign, sign. Oh, look at the smile. He wants to be a dentist. Mets do that. Now it's like, oh, well, this is not, this is preposterous. You got a Lindor problem. And, uh, you know, I don't, you know, I, you know, he's booing the fans and I don't like him. And, and meanwhile, he's at the, the tennis center across the street on, uh, on Monday on the day off and people are asking for the autographs. So you'll boo him when you're behind the, the moat, but you'll probably run and ask for his autograph if he was sitting next to you or you saw him out at dinner on the street. That's the phoniness. But that's that's fans for generations in every city and of all time. And that's just because this you know it's an emotional situation. They they have to figure this out, both sides. Lindor has to realize what this place is about. Winning will cure it. They win a doubleheader yesterday. Nobody cares anymore. Nobody cares. Lindor didn't, you know, buy you know, Baez was great because he made that great player on the bases. We're all laughing about him losing his diamond earring and that Sandy Alderson's out there trying to find it. Winning cures all. And I believe if he just focuses on baseball, forgets all this other stuff, really accepts the fact that the media is always going to be a shark pit, the fans are always going to be irrational, do your thing, and I think in the long run, if the rest of the team is built up around him and performs to expectations and stays healthy, and you bring reinforcements in, because now I think you're starting to see who is not a solution here, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Nobody's going to care. Yeah, if he doesn't, you know, he has league average years more often than not, but with elite defense, he's more Omar Vizquel than he is, um, you know, Derek Jeter. But it will be forgiven. It will be talked about from time to time. If and when they play in the postseason, and I'm pretty sure they're going to have a postseason some kind of postseason in the next ten years with Lindor here, he'll be under the microscope if he had a bad if he has a bad series. Happened to Barry Bonds for many many years, up until um, 2003. That's 16 years in his career. Barry Bonds was known as a uh, not a great postseason player, actually a choking postseason player. Series against the Mets, bunch of series against Atlanta. I mean, you you face an all time. Pitching staff in the early 90s when he was with the Pirates, that's going to happen. The issue with the fans is this, and this is where they're annoyed at me because I went on Twitter. And, I, you know, Twitter, you can't really get context all the times. Can't get context. The Mets fans have to understand they have a bad history with star players. They have a bad history, and they can't deny it. I think it's a toxic subset of the fan base. I think it stems from the WFAN crowd. I think now the Twitter crowd, which is probably more, I don't want to say more prevalent. It's its It's got more weight and there's more people on it than I think on WFAN. I mean, that's just fact. WFAN may not like it. They're not the same entity that they were, uh, certainly not in the 90s. They're not the same entity they were 10 years ago, five years ago. I mean, it's unrecognizable right now what sports radio is in this town. It's been uh, minimized because of podcasts, because of social media and whatnot. 
This all started, I believe, with Bobby Bonilla. But it really, you know, the PTSD. I said I was at the ballpark on Saturday. I've seen a lot of toxic environments with the Mets at specifically Shea Stadium. I always remember, and I was talking to somebody yesterday in the game. I was at a game in 1993, Mets and Cubs, and a game the Mets lost. And I think Bonilla struck out somewhere in the middle of the game. And I was behind the visitors' dugout, but I could watch Bonilla walk back to the home dugout. I could still see this. I could probably go to Baseball Reference and find the at bat. You know, if he struck out, you know, only once that night. But a fan was standing up, just screaming at the top of his own building. It was negative. They were angry. Worst team money come by the year before. Torborg fired. Thing fell apart from the '80s greatness. Everybody's pissed and angry. Understandable. And Bonilla was the symbol of that because he was supposed to be Dal Strawberry, and he wasn't. He's a. If you go back, Bobby Bonilla was a really good hitter. Wasn't a great defensive player, but he tried to play different positions. And he wasn't the best with the media. He wasn't the most uh, warm and fuzzy character as a person. But he was a good hitter. He was a component player. Asked to be Daryl Strawberry. Managing expectations. Sounds familiar? Now Mike Piazza comes over to a nice little engine that could te- engine that could team with a, a quirky manager in Bobby Valentine that nearly made the playoffs with a lot of players being put in positions to be successful by Bobby V, young players, but uh, component players on a team that uh, they played their roles well. And when you looked up, in a lot of ways, like the Tampa Bay Rays right now, they won 88 games, but they weren't good enough. And the team across town won a championship, and they were on an historic run to win the most games at that time in history. And Piazza comes over here in this whirlwind week, in this whirlwind trade, and he can't do it all. He's adjusting to his life changing. He's been on this show and he talked about it going from L.A. Uh, to New York and the cultural shift. He's with the new team. He's a catcher who has to manage a pitching staff. Oh, by the way, he's a free agent. So that question's being asked all the time. And you have the media writing, well, he doesn't want to be here. He wants to be in Baltimore. He wants to be in Colorado. He was supposed to go to the Cubs. The Cubs botched the trade. And even though the guy's hitting over 300 and wound up, I think, hitting about 350 as a Met, Average-wise, that second half of his Mets season in 98 was probably his best average season in terms of average, batting average. More so than, you know, his best Mets season 2000 and and, and some of the power and, and run production that you saw in other seasons. He was still very much the Mike Piazza that uh, nearly won a Triple Crown the year before as a catcher. But the fans booed him, and they booed him mercil- mercilessly. I was there. I heard it. And I remember saying, why would this... this they we're blowing this. Here we have a Hall of Famer, a guy that could instantly gave credibility to the franchise, instantly made that offense better, slotted Alfonso and Olrude into better positions in the lineup, provided the power that, even though Todd Hundley was a nice player, and the dynamicism that was missing since Strawberry, you're talking about nearly a decade. And here we are booing him. Booing him mercilessly, uh, because uh, it seems like he's not hitting with runners in scoring position. But in reality, uh, and look, how did Mike fix it? In September, down the stretch, he hit the hell out of the ball. He hit 400, drove in runs. Team fell short that year in an agonizing way the last week of the regular season. And uh, 
he decided to stay here and sign up for more. And good for him. The rest is history. Now he's introducing Mets Hall, uh, retired numbers and Mets Hall of Famers. And he's you know trying to be part of this new era of Mets alumni and this Mets family he's trying to build. Nobody who was around, and I was there, watching this team in September, August of 1998, would have put any money down that that's what the reality is here in September of 2021. And the Mets fans almost blew that. Piazza overcame it, but we put a lot on him. Fast forward, seven years later, Carlos Beltran. Mets are criticized for not being the big boys. The Yankees are the big boys. The Red Sox are the big boys. They compete in a month-long derby and win with the Boris client, the crown jewel free agent that's out there. And he struggles that first season. Again, we transition to a big market, managing the money, and has that horrific collision with Mike Cameron. And here we go again. And that almost took a bad turn. The rest of the history, Beltran had an MVP type year in 06. Mets have the season of love that year. So people forget he had some issues and the fans always didn't forgive him for striking out against a Hall of Fame curveball. I mean, think about it. He struck out against a Hall of Fame curveball. Don't give Wainwright any credit. I mean, at bat, we could break that down another day if you really want to. And, and it never was the same. But that season, there was a very key moment. Beltron started off very slow the first three, four days. The booing started. He hit a home run. I think it was against Montreal. Excuse me, Washington. First season of the, of the Nats. Maybe the Marlins. I can't remember. I'd have to go back and look. And he didn't want to take a curtain call. And Julio Franco literally pushed him out of the dugout. That was the demarcation line. But again, booing, beating him up. Doing everything you can as a fan base to push a star player away. You want star players, but let's beat the you-know-what out of them while they're trying to figure this thing out. Because they're still human beings. Race and Wright went through it. We all love David Wright now on the way out. I was there. They have no edge. They're not good enough. They're too nice. I had, I'm had. i guilty. I probably contributed. Those were the early days of NYBD. I contributed to some of that. We punished that team in 07. Because, because right off the bat, we were mad that things didn't go the way we won in 06. They got beat by a veteran team with a veteran manager by a Hall of Fame curveball. And you're right. You have the right to do all that stuff. You pay the bills. But the problem I have with this fan base and why I didn't like... I wanted them to understand what Baez is saying. Is going out there and creating a tense... And look, it happened in Boston, and I, but I think Boston is a little different because everybody's a Red Sox fan. Here, you're divided within the sport, and you have all these teams here that that there's a weird dynamic here. It's not Boston. Boston's a small city, even though it's a big city. New York's a big city, especially with sports. If you're going to go to the ballpark, expect to lose, that's the easy way to live life. Baseball's a game of failure, and I'll transport you to most other teams— not name the Cardinals or the Yankees or one of those, you know, or the recent Red Sox history since 2004. There's a lot of Red Sox history that's very similar to what the Mets are. Talk to a Red Sox fan pre-2004, 
and they have probably as much, if not more, pain than anything a Mets fans experience since 1986 or throughout their, their uh, fandom. So you want to go there and be negative, be tight, be angry at every failure, beat up every star so they could prove their mettle and earn their money. I heard a lot of that on Saturday night when I was at the, the ball game. So be it. To me, that's the definition of insane fan behavior. And I think it's come out. You heard it in some of the clips coming in. I've seen talk on social media. I think there's a toxic subset of the fan base that is not a generational thing. It's not an age group thing. It's a mindset thing that uses sports as a pulpit to get their anxiety, anger, and frustration about whatever life has thrown them. And let me go put it out there for three hours. And that is unhealthy. And if something that you're watching is unhealthy and it's causing you to be that unhealthy day in and day out, it's a 162-game season, it's not for you. That doesn't mean you can't boo and be disappointed and not have fun. But to me, the cities that I admire are the cities, and I'm not saying they be Pollyannish, cities that get behind their team, show support, are disappointed and sad, and they're angry when the team doesn't give an effort. And I don't see any of that this year. I see bad execution. I see guys that are not playing well under pressure because of personal or professional reasons, contracts, whatnot. I see a team that's injured. I'm more concerned about why there's so much soft muscle tissue injuries here than I am about whether they're thumbs up or thumbs down. I really am. Because that to me is a bigger thing. And I never, and what bothered me most, and I never said the Mets don't have expectations coming into this season, but what bothers me most is how difficult the challenge they took on in a sports environment where everybody could have said, just tank. And I don't want them to give credit or a gold star for doing their job, but this was never going to be easy. And there was this idea when this owner came in that the yellow brick road was paved out. And that's managing expectations. Fans, and especially this fan base, Never manage expectations. They're never good. So you have a bad history, and time and time again, you beat up good players. Piazza overcame it. Beltron overcame it to a certain degree. Uh, really, Piazza is the only one that really overcame it. Like, go through the timeline. Wright did, but I think Wright's history was rewritten more because of 2015 and because he became an underdog versus prior. He was part of the problem. Reyes was part of the problem. Guys, this is fact. This is not rewriting history. You were part of it. You were part of that narrative. And that brings me to the final piece. Because you constantly, time and time again, allow these guys to drive the cab. Because when they drive the cab, they do more clicks. They sell more papers. They make more money. And by the way, their job is a lot easier. Baez handed these guys gold on Sunday. Because I saw headlines like, Baez said the Mets fans go to hell. There was a, you know, they're running around trying to find every negative ex-bitter employee like Chilio Davis to speak to. I know for a fact they were trying, and they're not going to get Beltran on the phone. They're trying to loop Piazza into that. You can see on social media they're trying. I'm sure, uh, you know, I'm sure he got phone calls from media trying to get him in there. I'm sure that happened. You know, reach out through the team. Baez never said, and, you, and, and look, they're, they're a reason for what they did. Uh was couched. They were mad at the fans, but they were using it as an internal rally cry. Anthony DeComo, who was on this show, write a nice, wrote a nice book about right, was chuckling. If you go back to the video, 
He knew that that was going to be a setup question. And Baez took it hook, line, and sinker. They set him up. He fell for it. And when you guys buy into the LOL Mets narratives, I mean, there was a writer for The Athletic criticized the Mets for saying that the COVID, uh, the reason for Syndergaard being scratched from the start was non-baseball related. Well, it's, you know, a laugh out loud. Why can't they just say it's COVID? Well, I've seen that used for other teams. The NBA, well, health and safety protocol, that's not saying COVID. Health and safety protocol could mean, you know, you know I'm stuck in my building and there's a fire. That could mean, I mean, we know it's COVID now. That's today in 2021. If you want to keep that term, who knows? I mean, he, I remember they made fun of Syndergaard because he had hand, foot, and mouth disease a few years ago and got scratched from the start, as if he went out looking for that. The media wants to gaslight you. That's the business model. That's the business model in sports. Sure as heck's the business model in politics. The serious stuff they're destroying. And they're framing opinion. There's no real honest and free press anymore. There's some really good guys. They've been on this show. Notice, I mean, in general, they're all good people trying to make a living. And they have good projects. And I'll support good projects. But I have a handful that I really think are good. And are honest. And are trying to do the right thing. Listen to the show. And I don't want to call anybody out. I don't want to, you know, put anybody in the spot. They're all People working people trying to make a living. But you know who I respect and you know who I like and you know who eh, they're okay, I'll I'll support a project, but I could do it out. You guys know. Just listen, figure it out. You're smart. If you're listening to the show, you're smart. The Zoom divide is greater than ever. I think that plays into this whole thing. There's no connection. Guy like Bob Clappish, who's been on the show, covered the eighties Mets team. He knew them intimately. Also the players coming and going the way they do, that's an old hat conversation plays into it for sure plays into it uh, big time age and generational divide I think plays into it I think players now and I think Ron Darling Gary Cohen were talking about it on the broadcast yesterday they don't want criticism they're on social media and you know it's funny as a society we are trying to take sharpness out of our vocabulary but we have no problem going after people on, on newspaper covers or athletes or Twitter. So it's like we're a schizophrenic society. We build people up at a young age one way, and then we throw them into the shark, shark tank of the real world. And when they react how you would expect someone who's been not trained to deal with it, we get angry. But I said this plenty of times. The media's goal is... They win when there's chaos, anger. If you're happy and the team is winning, unless that's a playoff series with a nice narrative, there ain't no good stories being written. A team that's 15, 20 games ahead throughout the regular season, you could that it's fun when it starts and it builds up, but it gets boring. And unless there's controversy, there's nothing to write about until the playoffs. That ain't good for the business model. That's not going to change. You got some immature, younger beat writers and media members nationally, some of which have given jobs because of HR reasons. That's fact. That's a business like, and you don't like it. That's fact. Not because they're really knowledgeable about baseball or they're really good at, you know, whatever they do. They fit an HR component 
to the business. That's the world we live in. It happens everywhere. It's a fact. It's a commentary. It's not a criticism. That means you don't always get the right people. You don't always get the best people. You don't always get the most honest people. And that's across all spans of all different gender, races, beliefs, whatever. I could name white guys I feel about that. I can name females I feel that way. I can name people of every race and color like that. Not going to get into that. Not going to personalize it. That's fact. You don't like it, then you don't like the real world. So when you bring all this together, ultimately winning solves it. And how shallow we are. You heard how excited the fans were and Gary Cohen was in the clip when Baez came around to score. One simple thing solves it. A 6-5 victory. 20 minutes earlier, the Mets stunk and they were a mess and nobody's, they're never going to win another game. 20 minutes later, they score five runs against Miami. All is well. So it tells you what a shallow relationship this all is. But what's next? Look, I said this before. I said it the other day. I'll say it a thousand times. The Mets have an historic yoke around their neck that's going to be here until the day that they remove it and win a championship. Whether that's a year from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, it'll exist. And a group of players that comes in has to be special, has to embrace it, has to understand it. And if I were Sandy Alderson, and I were the front office, and I were this team and this manager, who I think is really good and now is being lumped in that this is his fault because he's supposed to now check during the game amongst the 50 billion other things what these different gestures on the, the field mean. Because that's really important for a baseball manager to know the thumbs up, thumbs down. The media sitting there eating a sandwich and a pretzel they could worry about that. You sitting at home could worry about that. The guy in the dugout, he's trying to manage a ball game. And I don't think they sat in the clubhouse and the manager said, okay. You think this was something they sat and they had a big team meeting about? There's a few players that did it. Influential. And by the way, when the player makes $35 million, the way sports is today, you got to partner with them. So if he wants to do that, you could advise him. You can't stop him. The NBA guys push themselves out. Every year to go where they want. This is a player sport now. Come on. S- smarten up. You're going to have a good manager, a solid baseball man, get lose his job over this? Not even going to get into that. I don't know if the Mets are really in a race. I got it. They're, they're peripheral. Numerically, they're in it. They're in a wild card. They're kind of hanging around. I still think they're going to win between 83 and 85 games because of the schedule. I think things will normalize. They have pretty much their team. DeGrom not being here is a killer. I think ultimately that will go down as the death knell of this team. The DeGrom. They could have probably overcome every other injury. Every fifth day, they were the best team in baseball. And probably were going to win. And they lost that. They lost that silver bullet. And that's going to ultimately be the problem. And that's going to be a conversation through the offseason is, how does this not happen again? And how do they make sure that they maximize DeGrom's window? Different conversation for a different day. They're probably not going to win enough games to make the postseason. And that'll be post-mortem, and we'll talk about that. But really, this three-pronged dichotomy, we're all, all got to live with each other. The media is not going to change. You need star players, and not every star player wants to come here and get beaten with a stick. And you know what? I think the fans could be better. And if they listen to this, learn from history, learn from what we've done, how fortunate we were. That a guy like Piazza embraced it and, and, and used it as a tool to be better. How, how fortunate 
things worked out for Beltron, how important Julio Franco was in that situation. And think about some of the unfair commentary and criticism that was levied through the media, but also that we contributed to with um, Reyes and Wright and what have you. You got to get over Bobby Bonilla. You got to get over the worst team money can buy. You got to get over some of the stuff that's happened over the last 30 years. Every team has crap they got to deal with. Every team has disappointment and embarrassing moments. Mets just happen to be on a bigger stage. And the Mets have had some wacky stuff happen, but it also, the narrative and the stories and the stuff make it why I could sit here and talk to you as a big State of the Union monologue for nearly 45 minutes. All right, what's next for us here at the Talking Mets podcast? Well, Labor Day weekend's coming up, so hopefully the weather gets better. It wasn't this show was going to be jammed in between the doubleheader and a Met game. It looks like the Mets aren't going to be playing today. They're going to be rained out. I have a great segment coming up this weekend. We're going to have Keith Rad, a friend of the show, and somebody who has been down in Brooklyn and has had the privilege of watching firsthand the top five Mets prospects that are currently on the Mets prospect list. We're going to hear about Francisco Alvarez. We're going to hear about Brett Beatty. We're going to hear about Ronnie Mauricio and maybe a little bit about Matthew Allen, JT Ginn. And uh, Keith was on the show two years ago, right after the Cyclones won a championship. Now they're a high A affiliate. Stakes are higher in Brooklyn. And you you can't get a better job in broadcasting than being at the beginning of a player's career, especially players that very well, sooner rather than later, may be making big impacts at City Field. So you hear from Keith this weekend. We'll keep an eye on what's going on in the news. Hopefully no more drama. Are the Mets getting back into this? We'll see. But I think for this weekend, be on the lookout early when the Labor Day weekend starts for me to give you something to chomp on. For your uh, If you're traveling, if you're going to the beach, if you're just relaxing at home, I want to give you a little something to chomp on. So there'll be another edition of the show before Sunday. We very well, depending on what happens, take Sunday off and then go back at it next week. But let's see what happens here. But I do want to give you that prospect show because I think it's fun and I had a chance to talk to Keith a couple of days ago and it was good. I wanted to do that maybe as a midweek thing but this happened and I thought it was important to kind of break down and and clarify and really have you think about these three stakeholders in the Mets daily world and how all of them and provide context as to why this is happening and really as fans what we can do to be better. And I think that's important. And if you don't like that, well, you can still do whatever you want. But you yelling, you being insane, isn't necessarily going to get you the better result. Bad process, good outcome is called dumb luck. Usually a bad process leads to a bad outcome. Anyway, I want to thank everyone for listening. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, And you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music now. Pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another podcast this weekend. Till then, take care, everybody.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.